Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a hiring strategy to make backlogs disappear. The Veterans Administration is announcing they're going to hire more people. Well, that's great, but one of the challenges is it takes a while for folks to be trained. So you need to be very proactive and clever about how you hire. Measuring success from your agency's RPA tools. Not just the time saved, obviously that's a big one. Uh, I think the the effectiveness is, is also very key, right? So are they flagging or resolving the issues that you're looking for them to, to resolve? Are they providing us the types of information that allow us to maybe make the next layer in our decision making? and getting the message out to make data goals clear. One of the first things the first uh, chief data officer did, the first person they hired was a communications person. It's Monday, November 1st, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The National Security Agency will redo its wild and stormy cloud solicitation after the Government Accountability Office sustained a protest from Microsoft. GAO found parts of NSA's evaluation, quote, unreasonable. The decision's classified because the protest record included classified information. GAO says it'll release a public version later. President Biden's infrastructure bill could be a big win for CISA. The bill includes $500 million for the agency. It includes another $100 million for federal cyber defenses and $50 million for improving cloud security, too. Industries getting on board the Defense Information Systems Agency's Zero Trust effort, according to the agency's new chief technology officer. Stephen Wallace says the effort that's called Thunderdome should improve DIS's cybersecurity and drive improvements across the rest of the department, too. Wallace says an update to Thunderdome's already in development. You can read more about all these stories and many others at fedscoop.com. The Department of Veterans Affairs will hire 2,000 claims processors to deal with the explosion in claims cases the coronavirus caused. Mandatory overtime's coming for people who already process claims at VA, too. Paul Lawrence is a veterans advocate. He's author of Transforming Service to Veterans and former Undersecretary for Benefits at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Paul, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. We talked a little bit before we went on the air. There are backlogs like at VA all over the federal government right now. The virus has caused some of them and other issues have caused others. When an organization gets an opportunity to apply resources to a backlog like this, what in your view are steps one, two, and three to make that response as effective as possible? Welcome, Paul. Sure. And that's one of the things I'm most proud of my tenure when I was at the Veterans Benefits Administration is we drove the backlog to the lowest level ever, ever in the history of VBA in terms of you know measuring claims over 125 days. So generally, there's three components. There's a people component. So obviously, you need to have people there. So you notice that the Veterans Administration is announcing they're going to hire more people. Well, that's great. But one of the challenges is it takes a while for folks to be trained. So you need to be very proactive and clever about how you hire. So you need to do it well in advance of sort of having the problem. So that's sometimes a consequence. The other is the technology. And as you can imagine, Francis, you know this better than most government technology tends to be old. And so many times the folks processing the claims or the passport applications are working around the technology they have. So you have to be vigilant about dealing with the technology. And finally, you really have to look at your processes because that's where a lot of problems are self-induced. So let's talk about the VBA in particular. There's two things I learned from my time there that are very important. 
to process a veteran's claims, you actually have to go and get their military records. Those are stored at the NARA facility, National Archives uh, facility out in St. Louis. It's this Indiana Jones warehouse with paper. So you have to go and get it. And during the pandemic, they were very prone to being closed while everyone was open. So that's one big problem or one big challenge the Veterans Benefits Administration have to going to deal with. And so they are ramping that up, but slowly. So no claim can be processed until you get those records. You know, delays in getting the records are attributing to the backlog. And the second, another component is getting the veterans examined. You do what's called a compensation and pension exam or CMP exam to check and make sure their conditions really do exist. When the pandemic happened, uh, you stopped doing those exams in person. Now they're starting up. But as you know, when you have a backlog, you have to go faster than you were before. So right now there's a real shortage in terms of people who can do the CMP exams. So hiring people is great, but if you don't have the process and technology to catch up, uh, that's, also, that's also a problem. And finally, is the other thing is everyone is prone to giving veterans benefits. Congress likes to do this. If you give benefits to veterans, but you are unable to process them, that really leads to distrust. And I think that's something that you know, VA should be thinking a lot about. A bunch of things there that I want to follow up on. You mentioned the challenge at NARA, and we talked with uh, Sheena Burrell, the deputy CIO at NARA, a couple of weeks ago on the Daily Scoop podcast about the work that NARA is doing on their piece of the veterans backlog. It's a huge priority for them. When there's an interagency challenge like that, that's something that the people at Veterans Affairs don't really have much control over. That's NARA's basket to try to solve. What does that do for those three things, the people, process, and technology? Because that's really out of your hands. It's out of the hands of the person whose basket it isn't, right, Paul? Sure. It causes incredible frustration because veterans aren't aware enough of the process. So when their claim is in getting processed, because the folks at NARA literally did not open their facility because someone in St. Louis said you can't and prevented VA from sending people in there, they blame the VA. And that's unfortunate. When I was undersecretary, we actually sent VVA employees into the St. Louis facility to get the records, to get them scanned so we could process claims. The way to think about it is, you know, at VBA, you run a factory. You have to produce these claims. NAR is a bunch of librarians. The urgency was just so very different, Francis. It was just frustrating. NARA does not report. NARA does not. They're an independent agency. Trying to collaborate with them was very difficult. They do not report to VA. And as you, they worked on their own clock. So it's great to see there's more collaboration. But this is a big problem. You know, tens of millions of records are there. They need to be scanned and available now, not in several years. One of the things that Sheena told us that NARA was doing was changing the priority and changing the methodology for which ones got scanned in what order. And that uh, conversation's archived in the archives at thedailyscooppodcast.com. You said a few moments ago, Paul, regarding people, that an organization needs to be clever about hiring. What did you mean by that? In what ways does someone need to be clever? And that, I imagine based on conversations you and I have had in the past, that's not limited to the human capital people in an organization, is it? Right. So just think about this, right? So claims come in regularly all the time, right? By the time you have a large inventory of work to be done, it's too late to now say, I got to go higher because the inventory will continue to grow and it'll take a year to kind of figure it all out. So you really need to be anticipating the work and understanding what's going to happen, right? I'm I don't want to speak about the passports, but I'd imagine there's a pattern that goes, 
People like to travel in the summer. I bet there'll be a lot of applications. You need to think of it. So you really need to figure out what to do. And the other sort of thing, Francis, and I know you've been a good at this, is it doesn't all have to be government employees. There's a lot of work that is not, you know, not entirely the purview of government around workflow and assembling information and the like that contractors can do quite effectively. So it's, you know, having more flexibility to do that. And then finally, it's just the understanding of the frustration of people who do turn to government. They just don't want to wait because the whole world is moving faster and quicker. So they can't understand why they have to wait. And so I think a perspective of what the customers want or veterans want is really, really important. And that's a word that you used just right there, Paul, that uh, not just politicals from either of the last couple of the uh, of administrations, nor just the career folks at VA is using. What do you think the reason is that that term customer became so important at VA and has become so important too at agencies all across government? Instead of well, thinking about I, people as citizens or thinking about people as, I don't know, clients or case numbers or any of that, that word customer has become really, really prevalent. Yeah. I don't know exactly how it came across government. As you know, in the last administration, the president really put veterans at the centerpiece of what he wanted to have done. And so that's something that really drove the team. And so it was natural to evolve that into customer service. But the one thing, of course, is you know, talking to veterans, you really do learn what they want, and they really are articulate about what's not working well, what could be improved. So I think you remember, you know, in the pandemic, I did telephone town halls where I talked to veterans and fielded their questions. That's something I feel very, very strongly about in terms of others doing in terms of just listening and talking to their customers. Paul Lawrence, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to talk to you again. It's great to have been with you. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about the backlogs at agencies in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service has about a dozen robotic process automation projects underway. It's considering doing more as it reviews the results of the ones that it's already started. Courtney Winship is Deputy Chief Data Officer at USCIS. Courtney, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program how are you using robotic process automation at USCIS, and how do you decide what to apply it to as a solution? Welcome. Well, we're using uh, RPA for a variety of different uh, reasons at the moment. Uh, we've got about uh, 12 to 13 projects that we, we've started with, and certainly you look for those early adopters who are really excited uh, to take this on. Uh, and for us, it's been mainly about uh, looking at certain internal processes. So we had uh, some great partnerships with our human capital and training team who are looking at ways in which to automate uh, things like our time and attendance and certain parts of that, right? And certain parts of reporting that they could make uh, more readily available to, to leaders uh, more quickly. So processes that used to take you know, days now take a couple minutes or hours, depending on what they are. So, so there are those. We also have a number of case management systems uh, who have lots of different uh, processes that have required manual uh, interaction. And we've been able to automate much of those processes and, and uh, again, have things run that used to take days now are taking minutes or hours. So it's been uh, hu hugely successful in that way. Uh, and, and we're uh, excited to see where it goes over the next couple of years. And the ways in which we 
structure these is we do have a center of ex excellence in place. So we have uh, each of our program offices or directorates that are interested in, in potentially leveraging uh, RPA would come to uh, the Center of Excellence and, and our partnership with uh, our, our IT partners, as well as those in, in uh, Chief Data Officer uh, Office to present whatever their problem is and, and look at the types of solutions that might be available. And we're really looking, well, initially we had an RP, uh, RPA uh, COE uh, just for, for RPA, and we will continue to have that. We're also looking at what other platforms are out there and you know what is if this is actually the best solution. And I think we're working together to really make that decision. But we do find that having the COE in place has been really helpful uh, and allows people to gather best practices, uh, reuse certain things if it, if it makes sense uh, and look at what the, what the problem is that they're really trying to solve. Um, and the, the last piece I wanted to add to that too is that I think our, our longer term goal and really not that far in the future is, is to make uh, RPA something that is one of the uh, citizen that we really leverage in the concept of citizen developers. And uh, so we're kind of just in the, in the early stages of this, these 12 to 13 processes that I mentioned um, were just our initial uh, step step into this over the last year, year and a half, uh, and we expect it to expand pretty rapidly um, as we go through this. How do you judge whether a process that you are applying RPA to is, whether you it, whether it's a success? How do you judge that you've gotten the results out of it that you want? Is it just how much time you saved? Is it just the speed at which you're able to apply it? Or are there other metrics that you use, Courtney? Uh, so it's not just the time saved. Obviously, that's a big one. Uh, I think the, the effectiveness is, is also very key, right? So are they flagging or resolving the issues that you're looking for them to, to resolve? Are they providing us the types of information that allow us to maybe make the next layer in our decision making? Um, so not just that we're cutting out um, time or, or speed to, to answers necessarily, but really helping us be more effective in that decision making too. You talked about a couple of the specific applications and coming uh, folks inside CIS coming to the center of excellence and demonstrating their problems, talking about what they need solved. Strikes me that's the way that you have gotten out of the cycle that some agencies find themselves in, which is RPA is really cool. RPA is really hot. We should figure out a way to use it on something. And, and everybody says, in hindsight, that's really the worst way to go about it. It sounds like that's what you've done to try to get out of that cycle. Am I reading that right? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think we've worked really, really hard to build strong partnerships, too, throughout the agency. So you have your, your technical teams, whether it's on the infrastructure side or whether it's on the data side. And then we're working with the business uh, units to really define what the problems are that they're trying to solve. And, and even from there, once that once maybe their solutions are implemented, like I mentioned, you're looking at reuse or how can we uh, find those best practices for other business units and really create kind of that community um, of both resources and, and, and knowledge as well. Who else involved in the center of excellence? Who are the stakeholders there that help analyze the problem sets when they come in and work with you and your colleagues in the in the data chief data office to figure out here's how we're going to deal with these issues. 
Yeah. So we, uh, as I mentioned, have a, a really strong partnership with, with our Office of Information Technology. Uh, so you have you have folks represented from from uh, you know the chief technology officer and that team, as well as security, uh, our data folks. Uh, we certainly have support. Uh, we have training and outreach and engagement folks as well, right? That are there to really kind of form that 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 community, like I said, and mm-hmm. we really do see it as um, one unit that's that's there to kind of advise and prioritize, but no one thing should kind of take priority over the other. It really is, you know, leveraging each piece of that. And what I hear there too is representation from each of the four kind of major uh, offices at the top of any organization. You have acquisition, you have human capital management, you have technology, and you have uh, financial management there too, it sounds like, all folded in together and examining these problems so that you're really all pulling in the same direction. Well, yeah, and I, I mean, I think that the group that you listed have also been some of the early adopters to, to this process, um, which is, uh, you know, both by out of necessity, I think, and interest, but also um just uh, just because of where we're seeing our, our governance structures kind of lie, um, it makes sense to have them as key stakeholders in this process. Courtney, stand by for a second. We'll keep going in just a moment. Coming on Tuesday's show, harnessing the data explosion at agencies. The former chief financial officer at HUD, Herb Dennis, is here. And the Data Foundation's Nick Hart has some ideas to turbocharge decision-making with data. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Tuesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever else you get your shows. Back to my conversation now with Courtney Winship, the Deputy Chief Data Officer at USCIS. Courtney, what else are you looking at in your agency as far as data goes? Um, We chat a little bit before we went on the air and you were talking about data literacy and how you want to enhance the data literacy program. What's that look like? And again, who are the stakeholders there that are involved in helping you propagate that, Courtney? Yeah, I'm personally very excited by the data literacy program and and what we've got going on. Um, So first and foremost, uh, we have great executive champions on data for data literacy. So we have not just our chief data officer involved, but uh, the associate directors of our operational units, so uh, which is key, because uh, they have most of the analysts, honestly, are on their staffs. So we have one of the first steps that we've taken is uh, that we have an analyst university program, and that really is about your um, entry entry level analyst being trained on USCIS data and different uh, tools on presentation and communication (laughs) as much as anything else. And that's kind of, and that's been wildly successful there. Um, And we also have, what we're looking to do moving forward is expand our data data literacy um, outside of just the the entry-level analysts, but also to um, looking to build a, like a journeyman's program is what, what we've been talking about it uh, internally. So that is that kind of mid, mid-tier folks and how do we ensure that we've got enough tools and resources available to them, whether it's through traditional classroom studies, online learning, in your day-to-day operational or working lives, just making that those um, tools and resources, again, available. And I think the last thing that we've really, really done and um, and kudos again to to this the 
teams at USCIS is work on uh, providing uh, visualizations and different types of dashboards for the executive uh, community so that they can see uh, and, you know, with one click of a button, what's going on in different parts of the operations and be able to ask questions and make decisions. And I think that has allowed us to, as I started this with, you know, really create some executive champions behind uh, the data literacy program. So, so I think that's where, that's where we're going with data literacy. I love the name Analyst University. And I wonder, what do you think has made it so successful? How do you judge that it's been successful? And what do you think has made it so, Courtney? So I, I will give credit to our service center teams who, who came up with the uh, Analyst University initial concept. And again, I think what, what, where we uh, find uh, the most success is in uh, the collaboration and partnerships, as as we always do. So may, it started here with with the service center ops. It's it's now has uh, many of our chief data officer teams, and we've expanded to other other directorates. And I think it's not just in the attendees, but it's also in who's pre, who's presenting, who are the uh, who are the instructors, who are the mentors, and what types of programs are they. Uh, representing and how can we work that into everything that we do. And we have had high um, just uh, feedback, you know, we, uh, you know, over 85% of the uh, students have been able to leverage what they've used. They are using it in their day-to-day work. They feel more confident in understanding and data and, and, and running reports, creating what they need to help their leadership and their teams understand uh, USCIS data better. So that's been the success story there. How are you putting all of these pieces together that you've laid out on the table in the course of this conversation to change the way that not just necessarily data practitioners like yourself, but everybody inside the agency thinks about data? That's a culture shift as much as it is a technology or process shift, I guess. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, I think that's uh, something that we've taken very seriously and, and communication is key to all of this, right? And we have one of the first things the first uh, chief data officer did, the first person they hired was a communications person. And and so we really uh, have, we, we are trying to ingrain this idea of data and data quality as being fundamental to everything that we do uh, just throughout throughout USCIS, through newsletters, through virtual visits or in-person visits and listening to folks to hear what their, their issues are. And hopefully we're, we're be- and, and, and as is very close to my heart, engaging stakeholders from the outset, right? And making sure that we are addressing, like you said, those business problems um, and their needs um, throughout whatever project we may be working on. Courtney Winship of USCIS, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. You can read more about RPA and some of the other tech tools Courtney talked about in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The former chief financial officer at HUD, Irv Dennis, is on Tuesday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.